Please take your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 37. Exodus 37, as we continue the construction of the tabernacle, and we will read the chapter together. Exodus 37, this is the word of the Lord. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made the two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. He also made the table of acacia wood. Two cubits was its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold and made a molding of gold around it. And he made a rim around it a handbreadth wide and made a molding of gold around the rim. He cast for it four rings of gold and fastened the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame were the rings as holders for the poles to carry the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to carry the table and overlaid them with gold. Then he made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. He also made the lampstand of pure gold. He made the lampstand of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers were of one piece with it. And there were six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself were four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of it. Their calyxes and their branches were of one piece with it. The whole of it was a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. And he made its seven lamps and its tongs and its trays of pure gold. He made it and all its utensils out of a talent of pure gold. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit. And its breadth was a cubit, it was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it. And made two rings of gold on it under its molding, on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, and at this time, children can be dismissed to Children's Church.
You should know who you are if that includes you. And as they go, let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we come to the part of our worship service this morning that is the preaching of your word, that you would do what only you can do by empowering your word by your spirit to make it effective in the lives of your people. We depend wholly on you, Father, to do this work, to give us illumination, to give us understanding that we might see you in your glory with more clarity and with more affection as we go from this place because we have come and met with you and because you have met with us and have been glad to reveal your glory and your greatness to us. We trust that you will do this work in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Exodus chapter 37. And you might look at this and say, as we read through it, well, this all sounds very familiar. It's, it's actually almost verbatim what we read through already in Exodus chapter 25. And so you might be thinking to yourself, really? You know, the description of the construction of these elements of the tabernacle, this is what we're going to spend our morning on. This is what we're going to spend our time in preaching on. Furniture. Okay, well, this is not ordinary furniture, as we'll get to. I want to assure you of that. Uh, but, you know, couldn't God have just told Moses to write down, well, and they did, as I said, they constructed the tabernacle and all of its furniture and elements according to the pattern God had given them. Well, he could have, but we want to see this morning that there's a reason for this being here, because sometimes with texts like this, we, we wonder, I mean, it's kind of like the old Wendy's commercial, where's the beef? You know, where's the substance here? Where's the content that's actually supposed to benefit me? How can I take this home and, and find anything here that's applicable to my life or valuable for my life? And we know that we shouldn't ask that question, but sometimes we feel like we must. And so we wonder that. Just honestly, what, what is the purpose of this description that is more repetition of what we've already seen described. Well, a few reasons I think this is important. First of all, because we believe God's word, we believe the Bible, that all scripture, all of it, including this account of the construction of this furniture, is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. So we hold that by faith to be true. Therefore, this, by definition, is valuable. It's profitable for us. But also because we know God's character, that nothing God does is arbitrary. Nothing that God does is meaningless or careless or thoughtless, which, by the way, a lot of the things that we do in our small spheres of influence, we are careless about. We are thoughtless about. We treat them as unimportant. But that is not what God is like. That's part of what makes God holy and unlike us, that nothing God does, nothing God plans, and nothing that God has given to us in his word is arbitrary or meaningless or careless. Everything matters. This truth, by the way, gives us hope for our lives. When we feel 
that we are in a season, stuck maybe in a season of futility, of meaninglessness, whatever that may be. It could be a job that that feels like a dead end, that I'm not accomplishing anything worthwhile. It's not what I would choose for my career, but nevertheless, here I am, stuck here doing worthless, meaningless things day after day. Maybe you're a young mother running after young children and, and realizing that your world is shrinking and the time and margin you used to have for relationships and for ministry and serving other people is receding like your husband's hairline based on a true story. And so you wonder, what is God doing with me here? What, what is my time worth? What is my life worth as I do these seemingly meaningless tasks? I'm changing diapers and wiping runny noses. It feels like vanity of vanities, to use the words of the preacher. Well, we have hope, even in those moments, in those seasons, when we feel like all is worthless and meaningless, God has put you there for a reason. God has you exactly in the circumstances he's planned for you for a reason, and you can realize and hold on to, cling to the hope that as you pursue to be faithful in the little that he's given to you now in this season of life, that it will be worthwhile if done for his glory. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This record is here for a reason, because God is not careless or thoughtless. It is also, as Rob pointed out last week, evidence that God's people were responding to his covenant. They were responding in obedience and obeying his commands down to every last detail. And this is the record of that, down to every last detail, which maybe we think is unnecessary. It's too much detail. We remember that they are also doing this obeying out of a heart of worship. They are freely giving of the gifts that God has given to them, giving back to him, and it is an act of worship. But it's also exactly according to his instructions. Parents, you know this. We are not satisfied when our children almost obey, when they almost do what we told them to do, right? I almost took out the trash. Okay, well, where is it? Well, I took it out of the bin, but now it's on the floor leaking. Okay, not very helpful. Ultimately, it's not done the way it should have been done. If you almost do your job at work, perhaps you might almost get paid. Okay, there's a real risk there. So we also see here that obedience is the condition, the terms of this covenant, and the people are obeying down to the last minute detail. This is the way this covenant, this old covenant works. God initiates, the people respond to him. God is the architect and the administrator of this covenant, and the people are both the recipients but also the stewards of the covenant, and they are stewarding that covenant in their response here in the construction of the tabernacle and the furniture. It is a bilateral covenant. Two parties are involved, as we see in Amos 3, 3. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? There is an agreement that's taken place here, and the people are acting on their agreement with God that every detail of his instruction for this tent of meeting mattered, was important. It was all 
significant. Okay, now you see the word in our title, significant furniture. Never thought you'd hear those two words together. These are not, you know, we're not talking about your couch in your living room. And we'll see why this furniture was actually very significant. But first, what do I mean by the word significant? Allow me to get a little bit nerdy here because uh, maybe you don't care, but it's kind of interesting to trace, you know, the usage of words over time and how in one period of time, perhaps maybe even, you know, a hundred years ago, a word was used for, for a certain purpose and in a certain way conveyed a certain meaning that now we use it and it doesn't quite carry that same meaning or that same weight. And I think perhaps significant is one of those words uh, that perhaps we've lost some of the definition in modern usage. When we say that something is significant, we usually mean that that thing is important. It's valuable. And it's right for us to conclude that if we say something is significant, perhaps a statement, that was a significant statement, or that is a significant building, we should conclude that it's important. But significant doesn't just communicate that something is important. It has more to do with why something is important. Look at the root word in the word significant. What do you see? Sign. There is a sign here. It is a symbol that is signifying something, and that's what conveys importance. It's important for a certain reason because of the sign that we see in it. For example, I have a wedding ring. Many of you have wedding rings. And my wedding ring is a sign. It's important, but it's not just important because my wife gave it to me, right? I mean, that's important. It was basically a gift from my wife, whom I love, and that's wonderful. And it was given to me on our wedding day, a very special day in our lives. Of course, that's great. It's important for that reason. But more importantly, more significantly, it is a sign. It is a sign of covenant love, a love that reflects the love of God, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13, that is unending. It is permanent. And that circle, that ring, is to communicate or signify that unending nature of love. Okay? Also, a king's signet ring. You may, may think of that. A king, king's signet ring conveys his authority. Okay? It is a sign of authority. And so that's what makes it significant. In the same way, what makes these tabernacle items significant is not simply that they are very ornate and skillfully crafted, which they are. And that's not meaningless. That's important. But it's not the most significant thing. It's also not that they're made with the finest, most precious materials that they had available to them, although that is fitting for their significance. That's appropriate that in the worship of God, in this tent where God is coming to dwell with his people, that the most precious materials are used uh, for that purpose. But also, that's not the most significant thing about these items. These things are important because of what they signify, and that is relationship between creator and creature. Relationship between God and people, God dwelling with men. We need God to dwell with us. We need God to not just be the transcendent deity that's out there somewhere, kind of cold and careless and impersonal, ruling over the universe, but not really involved in our lives. 
Or worse yet, for God to be near us with the incinerating heat of his burning righteous anger at our sin. We don't need that. We don't want that. We need God to both be near us, but also to be compassionate, gracious, merciful, loving us with a persevering, caring love. It is, as our first catechism question states, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. We must be near God. We must belong to God. And he must be near us, not with righteous anger, but with love. It's not just what we need today in the church age, but what human creatures have always needed. Our only hope in all time, in all places. So it's exactly what Israel needed here. For God to be with his people, near his people, in mercy and compassion and love. And God is illustrating this with this tent of testimony and with all of these articles of furniture. He is illustrating and demonstrating that he will be with his people. It is as if he's saying, I will be your God You will be my people. I will be with you and go before you. I'll protect and keep you. I will favor and bless you and show you my glory and make you a witness of that glory to the nations. And you will know and experience this covenant relationship through the tabernacle and its components, each of them pregnant with meaning to remind you. So, instruments of communion. The point there, the instruments that we're going to look at in more detail are instruments for communion between God and his people. And as we've already seen the description of the construction of these instruments, we're going to focus more today on their purpose, their significant function in the lives of the Hebrew people. So, imagine... For an, for an illustration for us this morning, to think about the need for God to be, to live with, to dwell with his people, let's think about marriage for a moment. If you're married, you will have an easy time imagining this. If you're not married, well, just imagine for a moment that you have someone who is willing to commit to be your spouse. I am willing to love you. I'm willing to make a covenant of marriage with you, and I will be your spouse for life. However, I'm not going to live with you. You know, you live in Wisconsin, and I really don't like the weather there, so I'll be in Miami. You can live in Wausau, and we'll be husband and wife, okay? We'll be married. Well, who would be satisfied with that? What kind of a relationship is that? Where would be the having and holding? Where would be the comfort and, and the help and, and the companionship in sickness and in health, or for richer or poorer, right? What kind of functioning relationship would that be? It would just be a formality with no substance. And I don't think any of us want that. God's relationship with his people would not just be a formality. He would be there with them in faithful function. So at this point, the tent has already been constructed, which is... Meaningful because now there's a place for these sacred instruments, these, these uh, pieces of furniture, items to be built and then placed in their proper place in the tabernacle. And God is going to show 
how he administers his relationship with his people through these items. So first, let's look at the table. The table was built for, yes, dishes and utensils that would be used in the offerings. Those would be placed on the table. That's a very practical use. But it's also, as we see, if we go back to chapter 25, we find a little bit more information about why these things exist or are to be made. And that is for the bread of the presence, what's called the bread of the presence. These 12 loaves of bread that would be baked regularly, we found out later every Sabbath day, they were to be replaced, and they would represent the presence of God with the 12 tribes of Israel. In Exodus 25, 30, it says, and you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me regularly. Now, the table was placed, if you remember the, the layout of the tabernacle, you have the outer court, then you have what Rob called the front room, and then you have the back room. The back room, the most holy place, the front room, the holy place. And this table was placed in the holy place, and it was placed adjacent to the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. And so literally, this bread is to be placed before the presence of God, right in front of the Holy of Holies, where, where the manifest glory and presence of God was to be concentrated. It was a regular reminder of the covenant relationship between people and Yahweh. And it was to be replenished every Sabbath day, we see in Leviticus 24. Now, this is not like pagan worship. It's important to make this distinction because this was a common practice you may have heard about or read about uh, in the Bible or other historical records that when someone had a god that they were trying to worship or venerate, they would often prepare food and place that in front of their idol, okay, to supposedly be consumed. Of course, I have questions about that because how often was that food actually eaten, you know, uh, by a god who doesn't do anything? who doesn't exist, right? Uh, but nevertheless, they would do that. And that's not the point of this. They're not giving food to God so that he can consume it and he can be satisfied, right? We, we know in Acts 25 that Paul uh, reveals God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't need anything back from us, uh, much less food, okay? So it is not like that. Instead of it being consumed by the deity, the priests and the Levites would eat it. This would be a provision for them as they serve in the tabernacle. So it was not food for God. It was a reminder actually for the reverse, for the opposite, that Yahweh would be the one who would continue to provide and to sustain his people. Next, we'll look at the altar of incense, very briefly, uh, the altar of incense uh, and its horns, the representation with the, with the incense, the fragrance floating up to God. It is to represent that God is always present to hear us. God is always, his ears are always open to his people as they offer up their, not only praises, but their prayers. To listen to the needs of his people to be honored and glorified in, as we express our dependence on him. And it would be a reminder that he was always there, ready, and willing to hear and respond. 
Also, the lampstand, which is a seven-branched candelabra, which we know as the menorah today. And you've probably seen pictures of it. Undeniably detailed, beautiful, made of pure gold. This is important and fitting, as we mentioned before, for something to be used in the service and the worship of God. But more significantly, it uh, was used to represent the presence of God. As we, as we talked about, as Rob talked about when he preached through chapter 25, it was to illustrate that someone is home. The light is on, there's somebody home, and at night throughout the camp, you would be able to look and see the tabernacle was a light with the light of the presence of God. God was always there. When you were ready to lay your head down and go to sleep, you could look and see that God was there with his people, illustrated by this light. Of course, it also very practically provided light for what otherwise would have been a dark place inside the tent at night. But metaphorically in Scripture, how do we see the Bible using the terms light and darkness? Well, light often represents truth, understanding, righteousness, but darkness represents the opposite. Evil, moral depravity and corruption and decay, and ignorance, a lack of understanding or enlightenment. In John 3.19 we see that this is the primary condemnation. This is the judgment of mankind, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Or we see the light relating to God in 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and now proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In him is no darkness at all. And that's another thing I think we can see as being communicated to his people that we don't worship God in the void. We are not asked to worship God as a practice of feeling our way through the dark, trying to figure out what he might want. Relationship with God and corresponding doxological worship, praise, function is not a practice of guessing, guessing at what God might want from us. We know because he's revealed it. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 4. He's talking to the woman at the well. We, the Jews, worship what we know. You, the Samaritans, do not worship what you worship what you don't know. Okay, because the Jews have the scriptures. Salvation comes from the Jews and through the Jews because God has chosen to reveal himself to that people group. Imagine what it would be like to try to worship an unknown God. What if we were just guessing at who God was? What does he want from us? Do we have any kind of relationship with him or do we have to do something to earn it? What pleases him? How will he respond to us? What happens after this life, right? It would be a shot in the dark. Jesus would also go on to say, that worship is according to truth. Worship is according to light, the enlightenment of the information, the truth about who God is and what he requires and how we can actually have relationship and fellowship with him. He had revealed himself to his people and they had the information necessary to keep this covenant, to keep their end of the bargain. 
okay? However, information has a problem if it's by itself. Information, while necessary, is not enough on its own. There must be a moral capacity for worshiping creator rather than the creature. And because the people would fail over and over and over again to have that moral capacity, to have the affection in their hearts that would continue uh, leading them in obedience and worship, God provides another merciful piece of furniture. It is the ark. The Ark of the Covenant, a title we're all familiar with. Movies have been made about them. You know, we won't get into much about the, the, uh, the end of the Ark. Where did the Ark end up? You know, it's been a topic of, of great interest in academia and superstitious circles and uh, scholarly studies. But of course, if you've watched Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you already know. Uh, but less serious scholars think that it may have been uh, either stolen or destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, we're not going to get into speculating. We don't know. What we do know is that it's not necessary for us anymore to have an ark, a physical representation of that kind. But we come to the ark last. I've saved it for last, even though it's first in the order, to emphasize the fact that it is the most significant piece of furniture in the tabernacle. The only item that is allowed and instructed to be in the most holy place where the presence of God would be. And that is what makes this piece so sacred, so holy, so significant. It is first seen as the very throne of God. Exodus 25:22 says that there I will meet with you. At this ark, on top of the mercy seat, I will meet with you from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, and I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So this is a very important piece of furniture. This is the place, the place where the presence of God that we sometimes call the Shekinah glory, this, this manifest presence of God would come and reside and dwell on top of the wings of the cherubim on the ark. Later scriptures call the ark his footstool as he sits on the wings of the cherubim and the ark, the mercy seat, his footstool. Now, all of the furniture in the tent, as we've already seen, has something to do with representing the presence of God. And we know that no building of any kind, much less a tent, can contain God because he is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. Yet, he chose to display this concentrated manifestation of his presence in this holy place on the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies was a depiction of his very throne room. Remember, this is an earthly picture, recreation of a heavenly reality. And so the people are seeing what it is like to, to have God in their midst, on his throne it is a foreshadowing of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, the presence of God dwelt on the ark. Secondly, more practically, but also very significantly, it was a container. The word ark simply means a chest or a coffin. It's the same word used for uh, the coffin of Joseph as his bones are carried back out of Egypt. 
And so it is this chest. It's this container. And what is to be inside of it? Exodus 25, 16. You shall put into the ark the testimony. The testimony that I shall give to you. And so the, the tablets on which the testimony, the witness, the words of God were written was placed into this ark. And the covenant that God makes with his people is founded on the testimony. There, there must be words to communicate what this covenant is. And so this is very important. And the tablets placed in there were both proof and reminder that God had communicated and that God had initiated and that God also expected a response from his people according to this testimony. Now, if you know the Bible, if you've been uh, paying attention much uh, to the Ark of the Covenant, you know that there were also two other items that were in this container. And uh, Hebrews mentions the rod of Aaron, right? A significant symbol of, of power, the power of God acting on behalf of his people. And also a jar of manna, right? Both of which would be helpful reminders of the providence, the provision of God and his faithfulness to his covenant. Now again, this, the fact that this testimony, the words of God are in this ark, speaks to the presence of God. For where the word of God is, there God is also. We know that his word is not static. His word is not like any other book, but his word is living and active. It accomplishes everything that he sets it to accomplish. And of course, we know that Jesus himself is the living word of God. Jesus said in a new covenant correlation, you abide in me if my words abide in you. Imagine that, as we've already seen in the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law, my words, my testimony on your hearts. If you love me, you will keep my commands, Jesus said. This is important because the new covenant isn't void of commands. Jesus said this is how you can be sure that you have new life, new covenant life. In me, you will keep my commands. I think that's important. I know Rob has made that point as well, that this is not antinomianism in the new covenant there's an expectation that conversion will produce a converted life. And that is what the power of the gospel does. That is what the accomplishment of Christ produces. Just to mention another point of the, the significance of the presence of God and the power of God with the ark as a symbol Remember when the Philistines captured the ark. They, they come in, they steal it, they run off with it back to their land. And what happens? They set it in the temple with their god, Dagon. And what happens? In the morning they come back and Dagon has fallen flat on his face before the ark of God. So they think, oh, that's strange. They put their idol back up on its pedestal. 
And the next morning they come back, and now not only has Dagon fell on its face, the head has broken off, and its hands have broken off before the Ark of the Covenant. And if that wasn't bad enough, now there's a plague breaking out among the people. They're being covered in tumors and dying. So they move it to one city. The same thing happens. People are getting sick and dying. They move it to another city. The same thing happens. Finally, they're like, we have to get rid of this thing. Take it away. Get it back by any means necessary. And they actually send it back to the Israelites with gifts of gold. And so it's like they're saying, you don't even have to buy it back from us, even though we could leverage that. We will pay you to take it. And that is how significant this piece of furniture was to illustrate and resemble or represent the power and the presence of God. It's also a sign of mercy. Look at chapter 37, verses 6 through 9. He made a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half its length, a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat, were the faces of the cherubim. This mercy seat, so translated, was literally a cover. And not just any cover, an atonement cover. It carries the idea, yes, of mercy, but of atonement and propitiation. Atonement meaning a gracious and merciful covering God would provide for the sins of his people so that And this is the condition so that God could be with them. Sin must be dealt with. This place where God would meet with and speak to his people was also the place where mercy would be poured out by means of a covering to atone for the people's sins. It was the place where God was rendered no longer the just judge enacting wrath against sin, but as a merciful and gracious friend. It was where they found favor with God. But it also required the shedding of blood. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 16, jump ahead, and we'll look at the function. How was this mercy seat used in the necessary worship of the people? And how would the priest use it? Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 11. Starting in verse 11, Leviticus chapter 16. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. You see the the stringency and the, the caution and the carefulness with which the priest had to perform these duties. First of all, making atonement for himself, he shall kill the bull as a sin offering, and he shall take the censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. 
And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. He would then continue with the sacrifice of a goat for the sin offering of the people. Do the same thing, bringing blood inside the veil, sprinkling it on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And this he had to do once a year, every year, in perpetuity until another means was provided. And so we see that it is merciful and it is gracious of God to provide this covering for sin. Although we know there's more to the story, which we'll get to in a minute. But if holy God is to dwell with unclean people, then there must be a means of dealing with sin. In this imagery, in this function of the tent of meeting, the tent of testimony, and these items of furniture, we can see, hopefully you may recall, some glimpses of Eden. The restoration of the garden temple where God dwells uninhibited with men is being restored, but it's not yet complete, right? There's much to be desired. Some similarities we see, the merciful covering of guilt and shame with Adam and Eve in the animal skins, right? The death of an animal, the provision of a covering for their guilt and their shame. And here we see the shed blood of animals also providing at the mercy seat a covering for sin. We also see signs, the cherubim, which seem to be guardians of sacred places. Remember, those are the angels, the angelic beings placed at the garden to keep Adam and Eve from returning and accessing the tree of life. But here, God invites his people to another sacred place where, though they can only come through a mediator, the cherubim are again guarding this sacred place, this holy place where God reveals his presence. And here, instead of judgment and death, they receive mercy and life. But Eden was not yet recovered. Unhindered fellowship that looks like God walking in the cool of the day with his people was not yet realized. The plan was progressing, but was not complete. There was still a separation here. God concealed, his presence concealed in this holy of holies. You know, the people could only go into the outer court. And then only the priest could be in the first room, the holy place. And only the high priest could be in the second room, the holy of holies. And not whenever he wanted willy-nilly, but only on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And only for a specific purpose. And with all the right protocol and, and caution and reverence, or he would die. There was still a separation. The people couldn't enter into Yahweh's presence. Only the high priest could be there, and not on his terms. So to mediate this relationship between God and men, he had to bring the blood of animals year after year to provide an atonement for the people's sins. That is the only way that God could dwell with them, but they as individuals did not have access to God. Not like Adam and Eve had in the garden. This was not the permanent solution. This was not the final arrangement. 
And we know this is what we're going to look at next. Because we want to see the contrast. We want to see the progression of God bringing redemption and fellowship. Redemption would become much more glorious in the new covenant. These signs were not greater than the things signified. These signs pointed forward to the realities that would take place and be fulfilled in Christ. God would come to dwell again with his people, this time not in a tent, but in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. I want to look at Hebrews chapter 9. You can turn there with me. And this is very difficult, honestly. As we've gone through Exodus, it's, it requires a lot of restraint, not just to jump right into Hebrews and basically read the whole thing. I just kind of re- want to read all of Hebrews to you because it's so relevant. It, it, it's like a commentary on everything that we're going through in Exodus with the tabernacle and the worship and access to God by a mediator. But let's just restrain ourselves this morning and we'll look at Hebrews chapter 9, only verses 24 through 28. It says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, not a tabernacle, not a physical temple. These things are just copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, year after year, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's already done that but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Look at what we have in Christ. Look at the blessings we enjoy. The veil that separated us from God, the Holy of Holies where the presence of God is, has been torn. Because of Christ and his sacrifice, his own blood poured out on the mercy seat in heaven, we now have fellowship with God. We access God as those who are Bold and unashamed. We don't longer come year after year bringing our filthy garments to try to wash them clean until another year when they have to be washed again. We are given righteous robes that will never be tarnished again because the righteousness is not our own. It is Christ's. The victory is won. God dwelling with us. He dwells in us. We are his temples. And we long for the day when Redemption is finally, totally complete. And part of what we're going to do this morning is look forward to that day when he comes again and remind us, remind each other of the efficacy of his death on our behalf.